Good morning. I am so happy to see you all. We are praising God for air conditioning, aren't we? God is amazing on how he's blessed us the day that he's made for us. We got a lot going on this morning to be able to celebrate some of the some of the guys are coming back there out at Boys Outback and and as we come into fall, fall tends to be a season of change. And one of the things that we have in in church life is seasons. And we want to celebrate somebody today that has been with us overseeing our children's ministry for a good long season. And she is now stepping down and and going to be taking a break from that oversight of children's ministry and just recharging her batteries. But we want to honor her this morning. So, Christine and Jason, if you want to come up. So we have this for you, flowers, and this for both of you. And it's a card, and it's also, um, we want to celebrate you guys by giving you a a weekend getaway, kind of a staycation at the coast. You guys are going to be able to go and get away. But we want to honor her now. So we give her a round of applause, for sure. Good job. Let's all stand and let's pray over them, okay? We do that? All right. Father, we thank you for Christine and Jason and, Lord, the ministry that they've shared with us and and the oversight and the care that they've had, both Jason in, in eldership and Christine with overseeing our kids, in, in whether it's Awana or children's ministry or science camp or VBS or Harvest Jam, just all of these different things that, that she has done so well. Lord, we pray as uh, she takes a break and recharges, and Lord, as you lead her into the next season, whatever that may be, Father, we know that in this uh, sabbatical, this Sabbath rest, you know that uh, it, it's in that place where you're going to speak to her heart. We pray that you would do that. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of partnering with her as a church family. And, and we join with them in, in celebrating just this time. We thank you for this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One other announcement that I have, too, is uh, you know that uh, Michelle Tindall was overseeing our women's ministry uh, for quite some time. And earlier this year, she had stepped down. And God has put it on the heart of Lisa Toller, uh, Pastor Mike Toller's wife, who is now going to step up. And she is going to be taking lead on our women's ministry and working with Jeanette Judd, who is going to be overseeing the Bible section. Lisa is going to be overseeing um, the whole thing. And then we're going to be working through and developing a leadership team with that. So be in prayer for Lisa as she does that. You're going to be getting emails and all of the different things. I'm not sure if Lisa's here this morning. Is she here yet? No, I know Mike's out with the boys out back. So that's going on. What else do we got going on? We have a baptism, and our kids have come in this morning because they want to witness one of their peers getting baptized. So, Paisley DeHaven, if you want to come up here with Dad. This is Paisley. Everybody say hi, Paisley. Hi, Paisley. <laughs> 
So we were, she's been watching baptisms and, and growing in the Lord. And, and at church camp last week, Dad asked, said, well, Paisley wants to get baptized. It's like, for sure, we'll, get, we'll, we'll do that. And so Paisley and I met this week. So as part of baptism, and what baptism is, it's a, that outward confession of that inward transformation. Where God has changed her heart, and she's already committed her life to the Lord, but she wants to let you all know about it. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6 that if we identify with Christ in his death burial, we also identify in his resurrection. So just as Jesus was placed in the tomb after his death and he came out and walked in that newness of life, so we too, and we model it after baptism. So as Paisley goes into the water, she's going to be reflecting on just how Jesus had died and went into the tomb. And as she comes out of the water, She's going to reflect on that. So, so Paisley, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. You can take that. It doesn't bite too much. <laughs> so, Paisley, have you asked Jesus into your heart? Yes. And when did you do that? Kindergarten at Awanas. Kindergarten at Awanas. Are you ready to get baptized? Yes. Yes. Now... This baptism is a little bit unique in the sense that we allow the fathers to baptize their children when the father's a believer, the child's a believer, because we really believe that the father is the high priest of that home. He's, he's pastoring his, his flock in his house. So Dustin's actually going to be doing the baptism. So let's go ahead and we'll come on back. So, Dustin, you can come over here. So, you can turn around and sit down. She disappears. <laughs> she Houdini. All right, we're gonna. I'm gonna pray, and Dustin's gonna do the baptizing. Father, we thank you for Paisley, and I thank you for Dustin, I thank you for this family. Lord, what a blessing it is to see a family walking after you, and and the children being raised in the ways of the Lord. Lord, I thank you for Paisley's heart, and the privilege of being able to watch her grow, becoming that godly woman that you would have her to be. And as she's wanting to follow you in baptism, Lord, I pray that, that you would bless her all her days that she would seek your face. And in every way, she would remember this as an anchor of her faith and public declaration of her love and her faith in you. For Dustin, Lord, I pray over him and ask that as he does this, this truly would be a blessing to him as he leads his home in you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hey, Paisley, go ahead and take a look at Mom. All right. Well, praise the Lord. 
We are going to uh, begin our uh, continue our worship time as we give our tithes and our offerings, and then we're going to sing a song that we've been learning around here. It simply says, "I thank God," and it re- it uh, gives us that picture of baptism, how God saved us, took us out of that uh, miry clay, and uh, has brought us to a newness of life. So, ushers, would you come serve the people? I'll pray over the offering, and then we're going to worship through song together. Father, we rejoice that you have brought Paisley to you and that she is now following you for her love with you. And we just ask that you, we've already prayed that you continue to grow her up and that you would grow all of us up in you. And that each and every day we would continue to look and act and be more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so now we worship you as we give our tithes and our offerings this morning. We do it gladly and we ask that you would take this money and use it to build your kingdom here and abroad in Jesus name. Amen.
Jesus was in the garden and he prayed, Father, take this cup from me, if it be your will. And the songwriter was reading that and thought about that and realized, you know, the cup was not taken away. The law was not taken away. It was fulfilled. But what was taken away is our sin. Our sin was taken away. So as we Prepare for communion as the ushers hand these elements out. I want you to think about that. And this song's going to help you think about that. This song's going to talk about the cup was not removed, the law was not removed, but my sins were. Ushers, come and serve the people, please. The cup was not removed, changed at all. Steam hanging there where I belong. His tears were as scarlet, but there in the garden, the cup was not removed. Sing that with us. The cup was not removed. The cup was not removed. He drank it all. Steam hanging there where I belong. His tears were as scarlet, but there in the garden, the cup was not removed. Oh, praise the Lamb who takes away my sin. He tore the veil now I can enter in for all my days my soul will praise him let's sing that again oh praise the lamb oh praise the lamb who takes who takes away my sin he for the veil I can enter in for all my days. My soul will praise Him. The law was not removed. The law was not removed. It was fulfilled. The prayers of all the prophets now revealed. 
Matthew records the Last Supper. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's all stand before the Lord and celebrate this communion that He's given to us. When we consider this privilege of joining ourselves with the the covenant of the Lord that He's given to us, this bread represents the body of Jesus. You realize that Jesus took upon Himself all your sin. And the full weight and the wrath of God. So that you might live. And that eternal life and salvation begins at the moment that you've accepted Him as Lord and Savior. You're living in eternal life now. This present reality is is a memorial that we have been given through this bread. You stand before a holy God, pure. That's awesome. Because Jesus paid the full price at the cross. You don't have to fear death. Because Jesus died on your behalf. And He rose again and walks in that newness of life. When you shed this temple, this tent that you live in, you will be blessed forever with a body that is not made with hands. A house perfectly fit for eternity. All that is wrapped up in this little piece of bread that we reminds us of what Jesus did. So let's pray. God, we thank You for this bread. As we hold it as a memorial, we know that, that You paid that price. You told us, as often as we eat this, to remember You. We do that. And we need to be reminded of the blessed resurrection that we're already in. And already, but not yet. We thank you for this bread and we thank you for your love. As we take it together, we do so as one body, in one faith, serving one God, and blessed by one Savior. We thank you in Jesus' name. Let's all eat the bread. As we read, Jesus said, This blood is the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus gave it all at the cross. His blood was shed as a perfect sacrifice to wash away your sins. The next time Satan reminds you of what a failure, what a sinner you are, remind him of the cross. This cup is a reminder to all of us that our sins are forgiven. And when Jesus said at the cross, it is finished, it was finished. The other blessing is the future hope. As Jesus said, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine until we are gathered again, until I'm with you in that new kingdom.
What a blessed hope that is to be able to sit across the banquet table and have Jesus raise a glass and you watch Him and you have a glass before you and you raise it and you celebrate that marriage supper, that newness of life. But till then, till then, this is a reminder that you've been forgiven and you've been redeemed. Lord Jesus, we thank You for this cup the blessing that it is to us. There's nothing magical in grape juice. But the mystery, the mystery is how you came, added to yourself humanity, walked a perfect life and became that Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world. We will never understand that. But we accept it by faith. By faith we raise this glass. And with a grateful heart we say thank you. As we honor you, Lord Jesus, in Jesus' name. Let's all take the communion. Thank you, Lord. As is part of our worship practice in the first Sunday of the month, and out of gratitude, we take up a special offering that the ushers will come forward for. This is just a love gift. If God has put this on your heart, these funds and resources goes towards a benevolent fund that helps meet the needs of people. You'll find offering envelopes in in, in there in front of you. Um, you can give as the Lord leads. But as we uh, conclude this part of the worship and, and communion, just think how grateful you are to be called a child of the Most High. God, I thank you for these resources and these funds. Lord, I know that you give so much to us. And we want to give towards others to help meet their needs, whether it's medicine or to keep a roof up or pay utilities. Lord, I thank you that through this church, many needs are met, but it's through you, through this church. May we honor you with the gifts and, the, and may you honor the givers. And may every dollar find a home for those that have need. Lord, and may they know that it comes from you. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah, hallelujah. 
entered into your courts with praise in our hearts this morning. We have worshipped you with our thanksgiving this morning. We thank you for receiving our praise, for being honored. 
by our praise and acts of worship this morning through song, communion, prayer. And now as we turn our attention to your word, we desire to continue to please you. We choose to open our ears, soften our hearts. Holy Spirit, we desire to draw closer to you and learn more about Father God, our Savior Jesus, and who you desire us to be as your people. Thank you for calling us your children and allowing us to come into your presence as we are right now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Amen. If you would open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We're going to continue in our study in, in Acts as Luke is writing to Theophilus, lover of God. The origins of the church, and we're in the midst of Paul's conversion. Someone once said, our task is to lead men and women to Christ. God's task is to use them for His glory, and every person is important to God. We picked up last week with Saul's conversion, Saul, Paul, his conversion, and one of the questions that was asked is, is anybody worthless? Can God use everybody? Is there somebody that is outside of, of, of God's purview of being able to be used? And the answer is no. Saul is one of those guys that in the economy of the church, they thought, well, he's not redeemable. But the fact is, everyone is redeemable. Aren't you glad that everybody is redeemable? God does not waste anything on anybody. He comes in, but what was going on here is the the Christians were being persecuted by this man named Saul of Tarsus. We know him as Paul. He was a Pharisee, and he was bound and determined to destroy the church single-handedly. He was determined that this Christian group called the Way was a cult. And they threatened Judaism. And they needed to be terminated at all costs. And that was true in his mind until God got a hold of his heart. And the transformation that happened in his heart is amazing. To take someone who was breathing out threats like fire against a group of people... Somebody so full of hatred towards a group of people that God would turn them around. Beginning a new life is really, really difficult. Beginning a new life in Christ is very difficult because you have to consider everything that was part of your old life to be dead. You have to consider that old man dead within this. But that new life in Christ is filled with challenges and difficulties. If anybody ever tells you, yeah, become a Christian and life is going to become perfect. (laughs) Say, you obviously have not made the journey. Within that, Paul would experience great turmoil in his transition. Now, there's a lot of people that will be afraid of, of what being a Christ follower might be like. I've talked with people over the years. I don't want to become a Christian because you've got a bunch of rules. 
I don't want to become a Christian because you've got a bunch of regulations. All the things I can't do if I become a Christian. I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't do this, I can't do that, and all these things I can't do. My response to them usually is, have you ever thought about all the things that you're able to do? But change is hard for people. And one of the fears that I find in talking with people when you get past the surface is, I, I'm scared to become a Christian because I don't know how to live as a Christian. What if I still cuss? What if I still smoke? What if I still have a beer or drink? Or what, what if I fail? And there's all of this tension that comes in with starting this new life. But I can tell you this. God has called you and He has a specific plan. And He knows what a knucklehead you are when He calls you. And that's okay. Because He's going to mold you and shape you into the image of Christ to get you to this place where you look like Jesus. And it's not done overnight. He'll, he'll knock off the rough edges. He'll take off the big pieces. But your whole life is a process of refinement. Michelangelo was working on a, a statue of David one time, and, and this person came up, and as the account goes, this guy comes up to him, and he, and he was doing this, this statue, and, he, and the guy asked him, he says, you're a great sculptor, how is it that you can draw great sculptures out of this? Do you have a, a plan, a drawing, what do you do? Because it looks like you're just banging on this rock. And he says... I'm just releasing the image that is on the inside. And that's the process of faith, where God is chiseling away at our life within this. But there, and, and I can tell you, every life chiseling, every work that God does is different. Why? Because everyone has a different plan. God's got a unique plan set for you. In the context of your life, and that plan was set before the foundations of the world, the day that you would come to faith, and all of the elements within that, including the day that you graduate to go home to be with the Lord. God knows that day. And He's working on you. Honestly, I don't like it when God works on me. Because sometimes it, it hurts. But I know that the outcome is good. For those that have that new life in Christ, one thing is for sure. When you truly have a new life in Christ, you will want to proclaim Jesus. You ever wonder, do I, am I really saved? There is going to be this, this inward unction in the context of your life and your personality. Not everybody's called to be a Billy Graham. But there will be an unction within the context of your personality and your life, where you will want to share Jesus and tell people about what's going on. A second element of a new life in Christ is in living your new life for Christ, people are going to challenge your change. They're going to challenge your change. Is it real? When I came to faith, a bunch of my friends had, had come to me and gone, no, it's not real. There must be a girl involved. Because they knew me. And no, it's, it's been real. And, and, and it continues to be this, this change and that challenge of change. Third, that we'll see within this, is your new life in Christ is going to be radically different from your old life. And it should be. 
Because the old life is a walking corpse. The new life is a living entity. There should be a change and a newness of life. So as we come to this account with Paul, we pick up here, Paul has met Jesus on the way to Damascus. He was knocked off his, fell off his horse, high horse, blinded by the Shekinah glory of God. Asked the question, who are you, Lord? you imagine that picture? You, you, you see the Shekinah glory, this, this thing, and Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. Oh, wait a minute. You're not a myth. You're the real deal. And then he has to go to Ananias, who wasn't real thrilled about meeting this persecutor. And Ananias comforts him, encourages him, shares with him. Saul is baptized, and now he realizes that his old religion was full of darkness, but in Christ he has this new life and new light. And the persecutor of Christianity becomes the proclaimer of Christianity. And it blows people's minds within that. Your new life is going to be marked by a growing life. It should be. If it's not marked by a growing life, you've got to come back to two questions. One, am I really born again? Or two, why am I walking around like a dead man? You should be growing in your faith. So let's stand as we read through our passage, Acts chapter 9, beginning with the second part of 19, all the way to 31. It says this, So now for several days he was with the disciples who were in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who is in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name? And who came here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests. But Saul kept increasing in his strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But the disciples took him by night led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. When, it came to when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him, brought him to the apostles, and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had talked to him, and how at Damascus he spoke out boldly in the name of Jesus." And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was taking, uh, talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. And so the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and it continued to increase. May God bless the reading of His Word. You can be seated. So one of the first things that we see in the, in the context of this is Saul's new life created this desire, this passion to share Jesus. 
to be able to preach Jesus. And so he's on his way, and he's in Damascus, and he is with the brethren. Now, Saul is a baby Christian, when you think about this. He, he knows nothing of the teachings of Jesus. He knows nothing of the ministry of Jesus. All he knows is his presuppositions that the way or the disciples were wrong. He has no context, no teaching. And so within this, he needs to come to this place of understanding. He followed and declared the Lord publicly in baptism for a Jewish Pharisee that studied under Gamaliel to declare that this is a truth by public baptism. Huge, huge. And that's what baptism does. It declares that truth that is there. And so Paul now is being discipled by the disciples. You can't miss the irony in this. Paul is being taught about Jesus by the very people that he came to destroy. Could you imagine what that would be like? To be in that place where you're discipling the guy that came out to kill you. To throw you in jail. Would that be believable? Would it be, be mind-blowing to think about that? transformation. Now, we know that this transformation took place about 33 AD, and Saul would spend about three years in this process. The other thing that I think is important for us not to miss is the fact that Saul wasn't just any Jew. He was a well-learned Jew. He knew the Old Testament, he knew the Torah, he knew the prophets, he knew the Old Testament writings inside and out, backwards and forwards. The New Testament was being written because it was actually being lived out at that time. So the only context of teaching was the teachings of Jesus. And as a new believer, he needed to understand this. The light came on. The natural man cannot discern spiritual things. And as the Holy Spirit was inspiring Saul to learn about the Jesus and the Messiah... All of the Old Testament teaching was now, he was going, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. That makes sense. And he's taking everything that Jesus was and is and taught, and he's finding these answers in the Old Testament. And it was lining up. And as a student of God's Word, he was passionate about that, to be taught, to grow. We all need to learn. It doesn't matter who you are or how old you are. We all need to learn and we all need to grow. And you will continue to grow. And you should be. In Hebrews 5.12 it says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to the need milk and not food. Why? Because what had happened is the, the people, the recipients of the letter of Hebrews were Jews that were in danger of abandoning Christianity and going back to Judaism because it was easier for them. And the writer says, no, you need to learn the basic things again. The basic elements of faith. Come this fall, we'll have a foundations class where we walk people through the basic elements. Every one of us should be a teacher of God's Word, a proclaimer. It is our job to share the Word of God. And then God takes that and equips others. 
Your new life is always going to be a state of growing. In fact, I'll challenge you with this. If you think that theologically or biblically you've arrived, and you're at that place where you know it all, concerning the Word of God, be careful. Be very careful. If you go, you know what? I don't need to go to church anymore. I don't need to read my Bible anymore. I don't need to study anymore. I'll figure it out. Be careful. You're traveling down a road that's very, very dangerous. We need to study to show ourselves approved that the workman is worthy of his hire. We need to be in that place where we are always constantly growing in the faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ because you have not arrived. If Paul had not arrived and he was at that place, neither have we. And so this, this per persecutor has now become the student. What else do we see? Verses 20 to 22. He couldn't wait to go into the synagogues in Damascus. Paul was a little fireplug. This guy was passionate about whatever he did. And God picked him and used him because of how he had been created. And so he gets a little bit of knowledge. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God. And he says, I can't wait to tell people. I'm going into the synagogues. Now, the second group of people that would have been blown away by this new life would have been the, the Jews in the synagogues in Damascus. Why? Because they thought that this Paul was going to come in and clean out all the Christians out of Damascus. And he goes into the synagogues and he says, you know this thing that everybody was against, that this thing that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah and is the Son of God? It's true. Can you imagine those Jews going, what? You came here for one thing, to get rid of this lie. Now you're proclaiming it. It would blow their mind within this. He had one message, one message only, all he knew. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's all he, he had one sermon. Going synagogue to synagogue. That was his sermon. You know what is awesome about a new believer, a baby Christian? They're all given their first sermon at their conversion. When you come to the faith and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, when God does that intimate work on your heart, that is your first sermon. That is what you can share. Say, well, no, I've got to go to cemetery. I'm sorry, seminary. i got to become learned. No, you don't. Share what you know. In the context of how you've learned it. Share your testimony. This is what God has revealed to me. Saul had learned and met Jesus. He had learned some of the basics and he says, i got to go. Where? Notice where he goes. He goes to the synagogue. Why? Because Saul was blinded by his religious zeal. And he went to the very people that were also blinded by their religious zeal. Saul was ministering to the very group of people that he hung out with. Who is your audience with your first sermon? Your closest friends. The people that you used to do life with that are still blinded in that old life. Share Jesus with them. Say, well, they're going to laugh at me. Probably. They're going to think I'm nuts. 
Absolutely. But they're dying and going to hell for lack of knowledge. If you don't tell them, who will? God has fit you for a purpose. He's given you a testimony and is still writing that testimony. Take that testimony to those people. Saul was passionate because he realized that he was wrong, deadly wrong, about who Jesus was. And he was going back to them to tell them the truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22-23. Paul gave them this message. He says, For indeed the Jews asked for a sign, the Greeks searched for wisdom, but we preached Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness. One message. Jesus is the Son of God, and He died on the cross for your sins. And those that put their faith and trust in Him and confess Him as Lord and Savior will receive forgiveness of sins and have eternal life. One message. Now how you share it, that'll be up to you in the context of the Spirit's leading. But it's this message. And, you fo- and, and Saul, he focused his message on one person, Jesus, within this. You don't have to worry about being elegant. Just be real. Don't look for fancy words. Share from the heart. Let the Holy Spirit do that work. And tell them what you know. Because they needed to know that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 21, we see, And all those hearing continued to be amazed. Is this not the one in Jerusalem who wanted to destroy those called by the name? Not only do your words testify the new life, your actions should also. They should be contrary. There should be a notable difference. The problem with the church at large today is there is not a distinction between the believer and the unbeliever. Our problem is this. We try to be so relevant that we've lost the power of testimony. We, tried, we have tried to be so approachable, not trying to offend people, but understand the gospel will offend people because it puts a mirror up against their, their sin. Now, does that mean take your Bibles out and go beat people over the head? Please don't do that. But also don't compromise. Live a holy life. Live a different life. Live radically transformed because you were born again. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. There should be a newness of your life. There should be the transformation within them. And as Christ follower, you cannot be who you were because you're born again. And you're being present active, you are being transformed into the image of Jesus. And let that Holy Spirit do that work. So Paul kept growing, and I love it because he kept growing and he kept confusing. I love that. Because he didn't know what to do with them. As he was growing in his faith, he was becoming more and more powerful in his testimony and his witness. Like, what do we do with this guy? He's now becoming a problem. 
within this. And living in, in, and being filled with the Holy Spirit, he was growing. You want to grow in the Lord? You want to grow in the Lord? Start testifying about who Jesus is. Exercising that faith in boldness and you will grow. Because you're exercising that spiritual muscle. And with exercising, you grow within that. Every Christ follower is a teacher and a student. And you should be spiritually growing. And Ephesians 4.13 says this, Until we all attain, notice, all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure and the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You should be coming to a Bible study and receiving. And you should be serving and teaching. You say, well, I don't know that much. What do you know? Can you share with a five-year-old that Jesus loves them? Can you honor God by going and, and reading the Bible in a convalescent home or someplace a shut-in where they can't read to be able to share that faith? What can you do? Every believer should be a student and a preacher and should be serving somewhere. You want to grow in your faith? You need to be exercising that faith. The other thing that I think that is interesting here is what Paul was doing. It says that he was growing and confusing and proving that Jesus is the Son of God. Proving. Well, how was he proving? Well, think about this. Where was he going? Synagogue. Who was he talking to? The Jews. What did the Jews study? Old Testament. Was he a professor of the Old Testament? Absolutely. He knew it inside and out. And he understood how Jesus fulfilled everything in the Old Testament. So he was going into the synagogues and saying, this is what Isaiah says and this is how Jesus fulfilled it. This is what Old Testament prophecy said, and this is how Jesus fulfilled it. And he was taking the text, and, and the word proving there means to join together. And so he was taking the Old Testament and Jesus and joining them together within that. And that's what you need to do, is, is to take the Word of God and, and reveal Jesus. Now, within this, Paul was in Damascus. So he, he, he gets saved goes into Damascus, he sits under Ananias, he sits with some of the disciples that are there, and then he bails out for a little bit. He's going to spend three years down in, uh, in this Damascus area, but not all three years are in Damascus itself. We know a little bit more because of what he wrote in Galatians. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, it says, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, called me through His grace... And was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach among the Gentiles. I didn't immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, which is Peter, and stayed with him for 15 days. So what did he do? Paul gets saved. He learns a little bit. Goes into the synagogues. Teaches what he knows and says, mm, I'm going to go on a spiritual retreat. Goes off into Arabia, into a desert area, which was cultural at that time. Because if you were to seek spirituality, often people would go out and have spiritual retreats. 
He went and spent a couple years out in the desert. Then he comes back into Damascus and preaches some more because now he knows more because he spent more time with God and the Holy Spirit. Jesus was teaching him in Arabia. Comes back, ticks some people off, and now they're really mad. What do they want to do? Well, what the world does when they can't control you, they want to kill you. They want to cancel your life when they can't stifle you. And so within this, that's what ends up happening. This new life that Paul had was, was continuing to grow, and he would spend a whole lot of time out there, but he would come back and they'd be upset. Verse 23 tells us that, that this new life is going to be challenged. Look at verses 23 to 25. He comes back into Damascus and it says, When many days, well, the time that he was out in Arabia, when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching at the gates day and night. So what had happened? He comes back, and he's great guns. And he comes back from Arabia, and he says, look it. Jesus really is the Son of God. And he starts teaching in the synagogues, and they're upset. We can't control this guy, so we've got to kill him. Well, by this time, and we know there was a period of time, because Paul actually has disciples following him. He is no, he, it's not like it's just his thing. He's been discipling people. So he came to faith. He's learned of the Lord. And now he's making disciples. And he hears about this plot to kill him. And his disciples say, we've got to get you out of here. Why? Well, we can't even leave town. They've got assassins at all the gates. They're going to kill you. What are we going to do? Let's wait till night. We're going to put you in this large basket. We're going to lower you through this window that's in the exterior wall, and then you can run away. Question. How did Paul intend to come into Damascus? With great power. How did he leave? Like a robber. Like a criminal. He was humbled. He had to lower. Did it matter? No. It didn't matter to him. He just needed to go. So his disciples put him in this basket. They lure him down this wall. Why? Because the message had become offensive. Understand this. In your new life, your message will be offensive towards people. And if you are going to follow your faith in Christ, you may get fired. You may get persecuted. You may lose family members. Should that stop you from delivering that message? No. Should you stay there and get killed? No, get in the basket and go. That's okay. Why? Because Paul needed to get to Jerusalem. And, and he needed to, to go. And so within this, Paul even mentions this in 2 Corinthians 11.32. And we covered this last Wednesday night. That it says, In Damascus, the anarch under Aradius, the king, was guarding the city of Damascus, and in order to seize me, and I was let down in the basket through a window in the wall, so escaped by his hands. In other words, he didn't stick around. He bailed. Why? Because he really needed to get to Jerusalem. Because his new life needed to grow, and he was growing in that faith. So then we come here to getting into Jerusalem. In verses 26 to 31, we see how his new life is seen radically different, but it is unified with the work that God is doing. Notice what happens here in verse 26, where he is seeking to join himself uh, with the disciples. And he needed to. Why? Because the church was not meant to be separated. It wasn't to be the church of Peter, and it wasn't meant to be the church of Paul. 
It's the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul was going to minister to the Gentiles. And Peter and James was going to run the church to the Jews. And they had separate ministry distinctions, but it was one body, one faith, one God. It wasn't meant and set up to be denominational. So this new work that God was doing with the Gentiles need to have unity within this. Paul needed to go to Jerusalem as an apostle that was born out of time. And he gets there. The problem is he gets there about 35 A.D. And the apostles hear about this guy, Saul, coming. And all they have is what? His history. Saul's coming back to Jerusalem. Saul started from Jerusalem. He's coming back to Jerusalem. What's he going to do here? Well, Saul wants to join the apostles. He's, he's had this work of God do in his life. He, no, he didn't. He's a liar. He's just going to try to infiltrate us. He's going to pretend so he can find out about us, so he can kill us. They were scared, rightfully so. They were scared of what was going to go on. It had been three years. He'd been out of touch. They heard rumors. And, and there was a caution that was there. But the church needed to be unified. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17 says this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God into salvation. Note, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it written, the righteous man shall live by faith. The power of God and the plan of God was to bring all people to this place of faith. God's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's God's desire. Paul had to meet with the leaders in Jerusalem, but the leaders were scared. So then we got this guy, Barnabas. Barnabas is a Greek-speaking Jew. And Bar- you've got to love Barney. We'll call him Barney. You've got to love Barney. Barney's a good guy because he always sees the best in somebody. And he had heard about what had gone on in Damascus. He heard about this testimony. And he heard that Saul wants to meet with the apostles and the apostles don't want to meet with him. So Barney goes to him and interviews him and hears the story and hears the testimony. And it says he took Saul to the apostles. He stood up for him. I think it is a blessing and a lesson that in your new life, God is always going to provide somebody to bring you into that that maturity. Saul had Ananias in Damascus, and he has Barnabas in Jerusalem that walks him into this, this new faith journey and the family of God. All new believers need somebody to walk with them. Why? Because i got to tell you, y'all Christians are scary people. People walking in these doors that have never been here before are terrified of you. Why? Because they don't know you. They need to be welcomed. They need to be greeted. Your friends that you're inviting to church, pick them up, drive them to church, take them out to lunch afterwards, walk with them. Why? Because it's a scary thing. I encourage you, be a Barnabas. Imagine Saul... He's having to go back to Jerusalem where he was known for arresting and having people put to death. And he needed somebody that would walk with him. 
that would stand up for him. And that's what Barnabas did. He qualified his testimony. He brings him before the disciples and in this ministry that is there and continues to, to do that work. And so he, he go, takes Saul to Peter and to James, who are the key leaders in the church, and he says, I've interviewed him. He's legitimate. He really is a disciple. And I've checked his references. Yes, he preached Jesus for three years in Damascus. They ran him out and he had to go through a, a wall in a basket. And the text tells us in Galatians that Saul would spend 15 days with Peter. Can you imagine how awkward that would be? This is the guy who held the coats for the religious leaders that stoned Stephen to death in Jerusalem. Can you ever forgive somebody? when their life is radically changed. Can you ever look beyond their past and say, yep, yep, I forgive you and move forward? You can if there's evidence of a new life. You look for that evidence of that new life. And you declare that through, through time and testing. What ended up happening was they came together within this. And, and he spent some time with Peter. Barnabas took him in. They were moving about, verse 28, about freely about Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. So they were fellowshipping together. They were witnessing together throughout the streets, in and out. Paul was hanging out with the church leadership. Verse 29 says that he was going out and then he started arguing with the Hellenistic Jews that were attempting to put him to death. That is in there. What did Saul do? Well, he did what his calling was. In Damascus, what did he do? He went to the synagogues. He went to the synagogues and he preached Jesus. In Jerusalem, he goes to the synagogues, but it's interesting which synagogues. The Hellenistic. Question. What synagogues was Stephen part of? Who was he ministering to? The Hellenistic Jews. Saul goes to the synagogues of the very people that he participated in the murder of, of one of the people that was caring for them. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. One, these were the Jews that killed Stephen. I was wrong, and you're wrong. I never should have assented to the death of Stephen, and you never should have killed him. Why? Because you killed Stephen because of blasphemy. He was right. And he went and he brought the truth back to those people that were there. Did they like it? Nope. Nope, because the text tells us that they plotted to kill him again. As a result of that, the brethren that was there said, Saul, you've got to get out of town. They're going to kill you. And Saul said, okay. So what did they do? They took him from Jerusalem to Caesarea Maritima, put him on a boat, and sent him over to Tarsus, which was his hometown. I want to show you a map just to orient yourself to what we've been talking about that is here. So, we take a look at Jerusalem that is here, and 
Saul had gone all the way up into Damascus and he had come down from Jerusalem. He would go to Caesarea Maritima here and he would go up to his hometown Tarsus, which is up here in Syria. He would spend about 10 years in that area, in his own hometown. What was he doing? We don't know. It was Saul's silent years. We don't get the, the, the letters of Philippians, Galatians, and all of that. We don't have any writings or anything that's going on. But you know what he was doing, I'm sure? Evangelizing. How long would he stay there? He would stay in Tarsus all the way until, for 10 years until Barnabas would come get him. And then they would go down to Antioch and then they would spend another year in Antioch making disciples there before he would ever come back down into the area again. When we read this, one of the problems that we have in reading the Bible is we think everything is instantaneous. Paul wasn't really active in church planning and missional work for 13 years. He was growing. But was he sitting? No. He was evangelizing. He was doing the work that he was called to do. Acts 11, 25, 26 tells us he left for Tarsus. They took Saul when he had found him. He had brought him considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The word Christian came from the discipleship that was going in Antioch for a year, consistently serving. What was the end result? The end result was the church had peace for a short period of time. Verse 31 is a summary statement that Luke gives us. He says that the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in, in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit and continue to increase. The transformation of Saul allowed for peace for the church to grow. Now, you've got to understand God's plan is amazing. Because God said, we're going to start the ministry here in Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. How is that going to happen? I don't know. He just said it's going to happen. So he creates the disciples, the apostles, and evangelism goes. Meanwhile, he's got this plan for this guy, Saul, who is going to come to faith as part of persecuting the church in order to establish a larger church. And now this persecution that took place for a short period of time was necessary to make the church bigger. A broader base of evangelism where Saul would end up going into Tarsus and he would end up going into Asia and taking the gospel there. There was a period of peace. Was there peace for very long? No, because Satan is Satan. And in Acts 12, we see Herod Agrippa start stepping in where Saul was, raging against the church, attacking Peter, and so on. But that, does that stop the work of God? Absolutely not. Why? Because people are being saved. A new life is going to be represented by this growing faith and this passion to share people, share God's Word with people. It's going to be filled with challenges. It's going to be hard. Don't give up. Don't give in. And don't go back. You got one job. One job. Proclaim Jesus. Can you do it? It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. 
because people are going to think you're nuts, but that's okay. That's all right. Better they think you're nuts and hear the gospel so that they can be saved than think that you're cool and acceptable and spend eternity in hell. Share Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you are doing that work in our lives, in our hearts, and within the church. May we continue to be faithful to that which you've called us. In the context of the ministry and the life that you've called us to, Lord, I know that you're doing a work. And you have a plan. You're not willing that any should perish. And you are using us to, to reach the world and the lost. May we continue to do that. And when all is said and done, when the day is over, may we look back on the day and say, yes, today I shared Jesus. Because I'm living this new life, the best life of being a Christ follower. We thank you. As we close out our time, may we honor God with our voices and our lives and sing praises unto him. week. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. 
Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.